Praise the Lord, everyone. Our God is an awesome God. There is none like Him. If you have your Bibles, I've got several passages of Scripture I want to read from tonight, beginning in Genesis chapter 18, verse 14, then Jeremiah 32. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God... Behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power, and stretched out thy arm. And there is nothing too hard. There is nothing too hard for thee. Verse 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? If you notice, verse 17 is Jeremiah speaking. Verse 27 is God speaking. Genesis, or in the book of Exodus, the 12th chapter, the 37th verse says, And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramis to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men beside children. And a mixed multitude went up also with them in flocks and herds, even very much cattle. And they baked unleavened cakes of dough, which they brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry there, neither had they prepared for themselves any victuals. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of 430 years, even the selfsame day that came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. For a little while tonight, I want to talk to you about how great is our God. Brother Clyde, again, you amaze me. Put my chain here. It is so refreshing to be able to step into a pulpit when the atmosphere has been prepared and you know that God is not only just speaking to you, but he spoke to somebody else. And how refreshing it is to be in a place where God's presence is welcome and invited. It is good to be in His presence tonight. Lord bless you may be seated. When I arrived at service this morning and we began to sing, the Lord began to speak to me and 
ask me that question. Is there anything too hard for me? And as I was sitting or standing there this morning as we were worshiping before my brother preached, the Lord brought this passage of Scripture to mind, and I got to thinking about it. So I went home this afternoon, and I uh, got online, and I just started doing a little bit of research, what I could find, and discovered some things about God's abilities that often we we don't think about. When Israel went into Egypt, there were 70 people that arrived. But when they are counted as they're leaving, there is at least 600 men, according to the Word of God. When Chronicles numbers them, there's actually 603,000 plus men, besides women, children, the mixed multitude, cattle, and all their possessions that they brought with them. When God said, I will deliver you out of this land, I will take you out of this place, I'm sure Moses had some questions. See, Moses was not an ignorant man. Moses had been raised in the house of Pharaoh. He went to the best colleges and universities. He was trained. Moses was well aware of the task. When God told him what he was going to do, Moses become fearful or doubtful. God, I know how many people's back there, and I'm not sure that, are you really serious that we're going to get close to 3 million people out of that place? If there's 600,000 men plus their wives, and if they only have two children apiece, that is roughly 6 or 3 million people. If they had more children than that, that number just starts escalating. The Bible says that there was a, a great crowd or number of cattle. There were probably as many cows and goats and camels as there were people. So it's not just getting three million people out. It's also getting all the livestock out that can survive as well through this journey. I have this quirk about me that at times I start thinking about numbers a little bit, and so I got thinking about that this morning, and and it just kind of pricked my mind a little bit, so I went home and, and started thinking about what this process would have taken. If they left Egypt two by two, and you leave at least four feet between them, and there's three million of them then you have a line about 97 miles long. For them just to get out, they didn't go in pairs. They didn't go single file. We have this huge crowd of people. 
if they were given approximately 400 square feet per family to occupy in camp every night, and that's about a 20 by 20 room, where a man, his wife, his children, his cattle are all going to reside in this little area, then the area that would have been required for them to camp is roughly five square miles. Now, can you imagine what Moses must have thought, having been trained by the greatest mathematicians of the world, the greatest scholars of the world, knowing how to count and how to figure these things out and beginning to think about, I am going to lead out these people. In the beginning, it caused him quite a problem because he tried to get out of it. But God wouldn't let him because God said, I I want you, I need you to do this. And so Moses accepted a job that he knew was beyond his ability. And from where Goshen was to where they left and went to, it's obvious that Moses took them on a path that would cause them some problems. Because to go due west or due east from Goshen would have been the shortest route to the promised land. But instead, it's indicated by history and by the names in the scripture that they started going southeast and they start along the western side of the Gulf of Suez, which was called the Red Sea. Now, at its narrowest point, it's 12 miles wide. At its widest point, it's 20 miles wide. So Moses starts taking 3 million people plus cattle plus all this other stuff on carts that he's going to take with him to the promised land because God bankrupt Egypt when he let them go. They came out with all the gold, all the silver, all their possessions. They gladly gave them everything they had to get rid of them because of the horror of the plagues that showed up. And so now they have this, all of these things that they've got to take with them. And they begin a journey out of, the, out of Goshen to the promised land. And as they start this journey... Moses knows that there's got to be a time where he gets the attention of these people and they understand that God is in charge. So God, if you're going to do this, I'm not going to do it the easy way. I'm going to take these people to a place where you're going to have to intervene to prove to them who you are. Because I know who you are. I saw a burning bush. They haven't. I I heard your voice. They haven't. All this bunch knows how to do is grumble and complain. They really didn't want to leave. But when they saw everybody die as a result of not having blood over a doorpost, now they're they're kind of getting on board with this thing. But we got to get them out. So we start south out of Goshen along the western side of the Gulf of Suez. And finally, all of a sudden, they discover that there's, there, there's an army after them. Now, 
If you go back and read the beginning of, of Exodus, and you read what it says about Israel, when the Pharaoh arose that knew not Joseph, and he saw this multitude of people and who they were, he said, we got to deal wisely with these folks because they are more in number than we are, and they are mightier in number than we are, and they could take this place over at any time. So here's what we're going to have to do, and here's, here is our task. We've got to convince three million people that they are powerless without us. Here's the task. We're going to make their lives in, in, in so miserable that they think that their only hope is us. We're the ones who are going to have to help them get out of this. We have the answer for their lives. Doesn't that sound a little bit like America? You know what politicians are doing today? Trying to make all of us think we're hopeless, we can't get out of here. I wonder what would happen in America if the church just stood up and became the church. If one man could put a thousand to flight and two, ten thousand to flight and three a million, what would happen if the apostolic believers in America decided to get united? <laughs> what would happen to us if we ever got past thinking that I'm powerless here, I'm helpless here, I can't do nothing about this, this is bigger than me, I have no power to overcome this. If we could get past that mentality and start understanding that I serve a God greater than any God that has ever existed. I serve an awesome God that has all power. And that awesome God doesn't have a problem revealing to me how awesome he is. He'll get mad when people put him in a position where he has to reveal himself. He doesn't get angry when people say things or do things that make it appear that, that he's really not who he is because there have been those that would walk. And the first thing that people want to say is that there's no way that they crossed the Red Sea. And not long in the past, there, there's been a, a, a scientist who is connected to the Nobel Peace Prize group out of out of Sweden. And he went to the Suez Canal and that Gulf of Suez and started doing some underwater photography and discovery and discovered on the floor of that great body of water are pieces, are, are, are coral formations that are just random because coral has this thing about it. It has to have something to grow on. So if there's not anything there to start with, it can't grow. And so when something falls in the water, coral starts growing around it. And then as time goes on, it decays and rots away. But the coral keeps the form of whatever it built itself around. And as time goes on, 
when all of the stuff decays, the coral is still there. And to their amazement, they discovered these formations that look like chariot wheels and axles and, and sides of chariots that had, had been buried beneath that sea and, and over centuries had been covered by coral that what was in the original has decayed and gone away, but the coral formations are still there. And they can pinpoint the date because the spokes of the wheels of the chariot are six-pronged spokes. And that dates to the time when Israel left Egypt and went to the promised land. See, we serve an awesome God. When man wants to say, I, I can't believe the Bible, I can't accept it because some of those stories are just too big for my mind to wrap around. Well, I want to take you to a, a, a man who probably had more education than any of us in this room, who lived the life that was there, and he had trouble believing God could do it. So he's going to put them in a position where God has to have a great deliverance to prove to this bunch of people that all they can do is whine and complain that God's in charge and God will see us through. The quartermaster of the army several years ago was asked to uh, discover or figure out how much food it would take to feed three million people. And the quartermaster discovered that to feed these three million people, it would require somewhere around 400 tons of food a day, which would be a train stretching a mile long just to bring it to them on a daily basis. The amount of water they would need is about 11 million gallons per day. And if a tanker holds about 60,000 gallons of water, it's going to take 480-something tankers just to bring the water so that they could drink. But God said, I will provide for you. But for them to understand his provision, they had to see his mighty hand. So when they get to the Red Sea, Bible emphatically says that they all got across in one night's journey. From sundown of one day to daylight of the next, they got across at least 12 miles of ocean. At least 12. And if they got across 12 miles of ocean for 3 million people plus animals plus carts, to get across in one night, they would have to stand at least 5,000 side by side in a line just for the humans to get across in six hours. The line would be two plus miles deep. And for the guy at the back line to get across, it'd take him at least six and a half hours to get the thir or 14 miles across the water to the other side. So for 
all three million to get across one night and for all the cattle and possessions to get across. The minimum width that the hole in the Red Sea had to have had would have been at least three miles in width. And the odds are it were closer to five miles wide. So God didn't just open this narrow path that Hollywood has showed us where Israel walks across two by two and they're looking in and seeing the fish on either side and they come out on the other side. The guy in the middle of that line couldn't see water on either side. He just knew he's walking across on dry ground. And the most stable soil that exists is wet sand. Put a little water on sand, you can drive a car on it. You can drive a tank on it. It'll support just about anything. So when he removed the water, there's a paved highway across. There was no mud to bog down in because it was in a desert and it's just sand. And they could all start this journey to get across to the other side. Now, that wasn't the end of the story. They brought two months worth of provisions and they ran out. And when their two months of provision finally ran out, they start complaining. And they say, you know what? It had been better for us just to remain in Egypt than to get out here and die of starvation because we don't have a thing to eat. And they forgot the Red Sea. And they forgot the deliverance because all they could look at is the condition they were living in. What produced that in them? It was living under the thumb of Pharaoh for all those years that caused them to start thinking, we're hopeless, we're helpless, this won't work out. It had been better eating the onions and the leeks of, of, of Egypt than be out here and die, and, and, and we're, we're not going to have anything. So that night, God just causes a wind to blow in, and as that wind blows in, the, the sky is covered with quail. The next morning they get up and there's stuff all over the ground that they never were able to name. In our Bible it's called manna, but in the Hebrew the word manna means what is it? They had no clue what they were eating. They just knew it would help them get through the day. So they didn't even take time to name it properly. They could have called it something like angel food, but no, it's just, what is it? See, the problem we have today is we've lived in this world so long that we have become conditioned to the fact we will never overcome, we're never going to be any better than it is. We've let our world and conditions condition us to the fact that we are helpless when the fact is we are not helpless. We are more than conquerors because there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God. There is no problem in life that can keep me out of God's presence or separate me from God. Several years ago, while 
in the state of Indiana. Friday night after service, I got in my car to drive back to my hotel. And, and I noticed that I had several messages on my cell phone. And so I, I opened it and I clicked one of those messages because I recognized the name. And when I started listening to this phone call, I, I, I was in a state of shock. Because the, the voice is the voice of a pastor's wife and a mother who is saying, Brother Hughes, I need you to come. Our 15-year-old was killed today in a car wreck. My husband was driving, lost control, and truck rolled, and he was crushed by this truck. Could, could you come? And I started praying. I said, God, would you... Would you just reach out to where they are right now? Wrap your, you promised to be our comforter. You promised that, that you would always be. Would you just reach out and wrap your arms around them? And I got the worst rebuke I've ever got in my life. Because God said, do you think I wasn't there from the beginning? Why are you thinking you've got to ask me to do something that I promised I would do? I promised you that, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So it doesn't matter what kind of problem you're involved in in life or where you are or the chaos you may be in. He's going to be there when you just need him. He's there. He reminded me. I've been holding him all day. You, This message is 12 hours old. I was there at the incident. I was there, and the dad said, I felt God's presence wrap around me as I'm holding my son while he breathes his last breath. But I knew God was there, and I felt his spirit comfort me because he promised that he would never leave us nor forsake us. He would never abandon us. But our world can convince us God don't know where we're at. He don't know what's going on in our lives. He don't understand the conditions of my life. God is just foreign or, or he's abandoned me or rejected me. That's a lie. That's what this world, that's what Egypt is teaching us. Amen. Egypt says we got to deal wisely with them because they're more powerful than we are. That they, they have the power to change things here. And so let's, let's deal with it wisely. And here's what we'll do. We'll make them believe they're dependent upon us. We got the answers. The answer to your life is not in any man written books. Quit reading the dumb books and start reading the book. The answers to life are not what somebody else has said. The answers to your life are found in the Word of God. And if you'll live your life based upon the Word of God, I can guarantee you tonight that your life will be the best life you could have ever had. If you'll learn to live by the Word, because it's His Word that has the power to change our lives. God hadn't abandoned us. God is ready to bless. God's ready to pour out revival. Because His Word can't change. And it can't lie. And his word says that in the latter days that I will pour out the former rain and the latter rain at the end of time. I will pour out both what happened in the beginning 
and I will double it with a rain that shows up in the end. And I'll give you a former and a latter rain in this end day. I can tell you emphatically, if the Apostle Paul had the privilege to choose what generation he lived in, he would choose this one because he knew what the Bible prophesied about the end of time and he would want to be here to see the revival that's going to happen in our world when God's kids walk through the Red Sea and see water parted on either side and you get across and don't know how you got across. Children of Israel got the promised land close. They, they come to this little place called Kadesh Barnea. And when they get to Kadesh Barnea, which is a place of springs that they were able to live off of. And apparently in their journey, they came by there on a regular basis. As they just made this circle. You know, what would it be like to never have to buy another pair of shoes? What would it be like to never have to buy another set of clothes? Because what you come out with was so blessed, it just grow with you. See, there wasn't Steinmarts or, or Dillards or Macy's out in the middle of the desert. There, there wasn't any way to keep making clothes. So for that to happen, God had to show up. And when all of a sudden there's things happening and, and they start getting bitten by snakes because there's vipers everywhere. And they start raising up that, that the, the emblem of a snake on a pole and whoever looked at it was healed. That should have taught them that, okay, God, God's still in charge. He can still do this. But it didn't. They, they get to a Jordan River now how are we going to get across? Then all of a sudden the water stops flowing. And Jordan becomes dry. Now Jordan has a muddy bottom. It doesn't have the sand bottom. So now they've got to wait for the wind to blow so that they can walk across without bogging up in the mud. But they get across. And out of Jordan they take stones. And then they take stones from the bank and put 12 in the middle of the river and take 12 out. What was his purpose? To build a memorial to come to on a regular basis that reminds you of what God has done and what God can do. I think one of the problems that we have today is we quit building memorials. We, we quit taking stones out, out of our chaos and our problems. And we, we quit bringing a representation of that out and putting it on the on the ground outside on the, the banks of the river so that when we walk back we can see it and know that God delivered us from the Jordan River. He's given us all these things. And we, in America today, we're, we're just, we're not really sure revival's going to happen. Why? Because we've kind of forgot what God's done. What's that memorial for? It's to take your grandkids to and say, right here is where God stopped the Jordan River. Right here 
is where God delivered us. Right here is where God changed us and healed us. And it's at this point God took the reproach of Egypt off our life and made us a different person. The day God takes this reproach of Egypt off your life is the day you go down that water and baptism. And there ought to be a memorial built at that water baptism that you go back to on a regular basis to remind you of what God's done for you and how he's delivered. Because God hadn't changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If God does something once, God's obligated to do it again. Because if he don't, he's changed. So for God to do something, it is etched in eternity that it will always be done like that. God will continue to do it. If God delivered them, God will deliver us. If God healed them, God will heal us. If God changed lives then, God will change lives today. If God unstopped deaf ears, then God will unstop deaf ears today. If God opened blind eyes then, God will open blind eyes today. Because God can't change. Because in Him there is no bearableness, neither shadow of turning. God is the same yesterday today and forever. But Egypt has this way of making me feel, oh, we can't do it. We're hopeless. There's nothing we can do to change this. There's no way of making this any different than it is. And that's a lie. That is a lie from Egypt because God is able. There is nothing too hard from God. When Jeremiah could say it, There's nothing too hard from God. Then God would repeat it back to him. There is there anything too hard for me? Is there anything in your life I can't help you get out of or get through or help you get over? There is not one thing. There is not a problem big enough that God can't help you get through. But it has to. There has to be a change in the way you and I start thinking and living because we got to start understanding that we serve an awesome God. We serve an awesome God. If you have, have you ever noticed when we magnify and glorify His name what happens in a church service? It's when we sing about Him and His beauty and His loveliness. There's none as great as Him. There's none like Him. We... He, there's none beside him. Now, now some of our songs we sing, they're, they, they're, they're correct in our way of thinking, but they're not correct in the biblical way of thinking. Because to lift up doesn't mean what we think. When Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw men to me, that's not what we are saying. But what we're saying is correct, but that's not, you can't go that past scripture to do that. That past scripture literally translates, if I be crucified, I'll draw all men to me. And so he was crucified. It doesn't require you lifting him up for him to draw somebody. We're, we're not going to worship God enough for God to start saying, okay, I'm obligated to these people because they, they worship me enough that I'm going to start reaching out to people because they worship me. That doesn't have nothing to do with you and I. Now, when we start lifting him up in worship and praise, in our way of thinking, God does show up. God does move. He does come in this place. And all of a sudden, you start feeling things different than before because that's the way God is. We serve a great God. We serve an awesome God. There is none like Him. There is none beside Him. 
Why does he move like he does in our midst? It's because we understand who he is. We understand the power of his name and why that name is important. And we better never forget that that name is what's made us who we are and what we are. It is the revelation that Jesus Christ is God manifest in flesh. That revelation is what changes life. And without that revelation, nothing will happen in my life. There is none like it. I, I, I remember a conversation a few months back with a guy that, that uh, we were talking about some of these photographs that the space, the, the Hubble telescope has taken. And I, I remember on the bottom one, and it said 300 or, three point, or 300 million light years away. And, you know, that number is just, our brains can't quite comprehend that number. So 300 million light years is, is 108,000 times 60 seconds times 60 minutes times 24 hours in a day times 365 days in a year times 300 million. And that, that's just this huge number. And, and, and I said to him, you know, you know what's awesome about that picture? He said, no what? I said, that just proves what God's done. That doesn't prove who he is right now. Because that took 300 million light years to get here. We have no clue what happened with all that in 300 million years. All God's allowing you to do is to see what he has done. Because we serve a great God. If he can part water for three million, and that number could be as high as six. You know, if they had more than three kids apiece, it could be a whole lot higher than six. It could be way up there. There's a mixed multitude. We don't even know how many they are. You know, there's a mixed multitude. Well, I, you know, we have this tendency to, to want to say, well, there are people that married Egyptians that weren't poor, pure Jews. But no, when I started reading and studying it carefully, when God told Israel, here's what I want you to do. I want you to kill the, the Paschal lamb, and, and you put the blood on the doorpost, and bring into your house everyone in your family plus all your servants that have been willing to convert to Judaism. And they have been circumcised, and they believe in Jehovah. You bring them in too, and they will be saved as well. So the people that get to go on the journey with them are people that they have witnessed to that weren't really Jews, but they, they, they bought in to this relationship they had with God. And they said, that's what we don't, want to, we don't want to worship the sun God, the moon God, the mother God of Egypt. We want to worship Jehovah. And that mixed multitudes in that crowd as well. And all these people get across in 12 hours' time because God is an awesome God. Now, there are videos of chariots on the bottom Red Sea that are lined up in almost like a row from one side to the other side with coral all over the remains of a chariot, wheels, and axles. When they brought the first one out of the water and took it into Egypt to their archaeologist and placed it down for him to look at without telling them anything 
about what they were looking at. He said, that is the wheel of a chariot from 1400 B.C., about the time Israel comes out of Egypt. That's the chariot. Then they tell him where they found it. Why? Because God has preserved to make sure that us humans know I did all those things. Whatever's in that book that I said I did, I did it. Because I haven't changed. It is the word of life. You stake your life on it. You live by it. It'll change your life. Because we serve an awesome God. He's bigger than our diseases. He's bigger than our problems. He's bigger than our fears. He's bigger than our anxieties. There is none like him. Because he's an awesome God. How great is our God. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great. Brother Clyde, too. Please come. I had no idea my brother would ask me to preach today when the Lord started speaking to me this morning. I had no idea. I had no idea what he was going to preach this morning. I had no idea. He's trying to tell somebody, I know where you live. I know what's going on in your life. And there's just nothing too hard for me. I'm bigger than your problems. But you got to stop thinking like Egypt. This is not a possibility. You say, Brother Hughes, you don't don't understand how big it is. He'd say, go with me to the Red Sea. Let's go to the Gulf of Suez. Stand right here. Look. Can you see the ground? Can you see the the shore on the other side? No. Because you can't see 12 miles in distance because of the curvature of the earth. You can't see it. You don't have a clue what's over there. And you don't have a clue where your life's going tomorrow. But he does. And I promise you, if you'll put your hand in his, he'll lead you. He'll lead you. He'll lead you. And you'll never be afraid. Please stand.